0: I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started.
1: (laughs) Hey na 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 and in na na and I, na na a I, na na I, na na I, I, a I, na I, na na I, na I,
0: Shalom, shalom beautiful friends. It's great to see you. Great to see you. Thank you so much for being here. We are in for a doozy today. Hobbes versus the anarchists. A king versus no king. We're going to start with a poll. You probably wonder what such a poll question would be. (laughs) How much do we need the state to protect us? Number one, I support anarchy. We should be highly skeptical of all forms of government and should limit their powers in all ways possible. Option two, governments always have a lot of good and a lot of bad and we need strong government but also strong checks on it. Option three, big government is a big part of the answer to solving major social problems. Option four, government is central to all and even monarchies and tyrants are crucial to uphold social order. Okay, this is a tough one. Let's see where you're gonna fall out here. Let's see what you're gonna do. Can't wait to see what you're gonna do here. Can't wait to see I'm on edge. (laughs) Okay, let's see our results if we have results yet. I know it's a real tricky one. Ooh, wow, a big divide. Okay, so we have zero anarchists here. Phew. Okay. <laughs> if you if you wanted to vote but didn't get to yet, I'm sorry if you're the anarchist, here, you didn't get the vote yet. Government is central to everything, even for tyrants. Um, nobody nobody's over there also. Phew. Okay. And in the middle, as usual, in the middle, 50% governments, a lot of good and bad. And government is a big part of the answer to solving problems. Okay. A lot of good stuff here. All right, let's see how Jewish thought plays out on this crucial question. God is HaMelech, the king. We don't need any earthly king to govern us. That is the approach that many Jewish thinkers have taken. And while all agree that we need some form of governance, establishing a court or governing system is one of the Sheva Mitzvot B'nai Noach, by the way. Right before Har Sinai, there are the seven Noahide laws. The only question being whether that should entail having a king. Other Jewish thinkers have suggested that a monarchy is a perfectly fine, perhaps even ideal government model. <clears throat> so with the advent of modernity, we witnessed the opportunity to uproot and dismantle the old order. Think Le Miz. think Le Mis, uh, do you hear the people sing? Think the play Hamilton um, and fighting back uh, against the Brits. Think about revolutions. And so some were revolutionaries while others were desperately working to preserve order. Which side would you have been on? Would you have been on the side of the French monarch? Would you have been on the side of, of the Brits taxing the new Americans? Or would you be on the side of revolutionaries trying to dismantle the monarchies? This is where Thomas Hobbes comes in. Hobbes famously argued that by a right of nature, one would feel they have no obligations. One would also assume they are free to do anything in the name of survival and live a life of self-interest. He thus contends that we need government power to control humanity from eating each other alive. Hobbes rejected the assumption that by our nature we are sociable. The other major civilizations such as the Greeks and Christian culture had largely assumed that we were inclined to live with each other. Hobbes thought our nature is isolation and self-interest and the living collectively is extremely difficult and therefore needs to be tightly governed. We would need contracts to manage order in society and those contracts must be strictly enforced. Ethics for Hobbes is something else Ethics leads us to go beyond our nature and beyond governance into the realm of doing what is good for others beyond what is good for oneself. Now, to be sure, the Talmudic rabbis had themselves offered such an idea that government was needed primarily to prevent violence long before Hobbes did. It says here famously in Pirkei Avot 3-2, Rav Hanina, the, ver- the vice high priest, said, pray for the welfare of the government. For were it not for the fear it inspires, every person would swallow their neighbor alive. So again, the Pirkei vote is saying here, government is needed, even bad government, because it maintains social order. People will massacre one another if no one is keeping order. However, it also makes clear that that may be the sole or primary goal of government. And so here you can imagine someone supporting big government using this Pirkei vote saying, see? You see how crucial the rabbis say government is? And you can imagine a libertarian who wants to limit government showing this text, saying, see? You see how the rabbis think the sole role of government is to is to maintain order. And that's it. Rabbi Yitz Greenberg directly connects the above teaching with Hobbes. He says, this is a Hobbesian view. Since people act out of power and selfishness, they would be in a state of perpetual warfare with each other were it not for the restraining power of the government. By this logic, as Hobbes argued, government has the right to be authoritarian and not subject to the changing will of the citizens. You know, some people claim, geez, wouldn't it be great if America was China right now? Because China can just say COVID, pandemic, everyone has to follow this protocol. And if you don't, you go to jail or we'll kill you. You know what I mean? And America, we're like, okay, there's this concept of freedom, and you know, the courts are going to undermine if you go too far in trying to impose your um, your public health mandates upon businesses and and pub, you know, the public and ent- the private enterprise, um, and and the private home. And so, some people will say, good, the freedom is good, and others people say, wouldn't it be good if we were a little more authoritarian? So this said, the rabbis, to be sure, were addressing living under a foreign king. Obviously, the rabbis didn't know anything about sovereignty. When it comes to a king of Israel, when it comes to the king of Israel, the biblical and the rabbinic texts speak with ambivalence towards the king. So that's interesting. You would have thought they said Jewish king, good, non-Jewish king, bad, but the opposite. They're saying, oh, non-Jewish king, we need that, right? The people are gonna have pogroms and crusades. They're gonna massacre us if there's nobody kind of overseeing some order, right? Um, Of course, the monarchs were just as bad to us as the masses. But if it's a Jewish king, we're not sure we want a Jewish king. So looking back at Tanakh, looking back at Tanakh, we see this conversation emerges during the period of the Shoftim, the book of Shoftim, Sefer Shofti, and the Judges. The text demonstrates that prior to Israelite monarchies, Israel society was anarchistic. anarchistic, right? It was anarchy prior to the Melech emerging. Right, we had judges. Prior to judges, we had, we had other forms of prophets. It says famously over here in Judges 21-25, In those days there was no king in Israel. Every person did that which was right in their own eyes. The prophet Shmuel, uh, Shmuli, the great prophet Shmuel, <laughs> Samuel, he critiques the Jews for wanting a king. Why should we want to be like all the other nations, he asks what do we want to be like them for? We should do what's right out of love of God and a desire to live a virtuous life, not out of fear of a king, right? To be sure, the Haredim, the ultra-Orthodox, who are also anti-Zionist, even if they live in Israel, also like, what do we need a state for? We live under God. We don't need a state. Further, we should build a government that actualizes a Torah lifestyle, he argued not one of political expediency emulated after the surrounding nations. We don't want to be like them. We don't want to seat at the United Nations, right? The people were explicit in their asserting that other nations are the example they want to follow. Here's what it says in, in judges, 8:20, So that we too may be like all the other nations, that our king may lead us and go f- before us and fight our wars. That was part of the critique, is that they didn't say, we want justice. We want security. They said we want to be like them, right? That's the great argue, argument of assimilationists. Just let us be like everyone else, right? We don't want a great country club. We want a country club that's as good as theirs. We don't want a, a, a we don't want a good Jewish donut. We want a donut as good as Dunkin' Donuts, right? <laughs> we don't want a state that's that's like the model of Jewish ethics and spirituality. We want a state just like all the other people have a state. But Shmuel objects, both on practical grounds, because a king will abuse his power, and also on theological grounds, because the Lord your God is your king. It says there in Samuel, Book of Shmuel, our great prophet Shmueli. We love him. Um, But by the way, this is also those who oppose women's ordination, uh, women being rabbis. Their argument on traditional grounds primarily was on the argument of srara. It's called srara. Only a man could be king was the argument. I and mean, it's hard to believe we still don't have a woman president in America, right? Uh, only a man could be king and, that, and thus have authority, and thus only a, only a rabbi could be male, because the, the authority of the rabbinate is based off the authority of, of the machut, of the, of the kingship. And, and so that was easy for a liberal Judaism. They said, well, we're not interested in rabbis as authorities. Rabbis can be pastors. I want my rabbi to lead bar and bat mitzvahs and to do funerals and to meet with me when I'm depressed. Right? I don't want a rabbi to be a person who gives me answers right, to what to do on Pesach or how to handle you know, sitting Shiva. This is not an authority. This is a pastor. In orthodoxy, a rabbi is still an authority. And so Sarara applied. And so they said a woman can't be a rabbi because they don't have authority because they, a woman could be a kid. OK, that's a whole different argument, but just a little side bit of, of interesting uh, argumentation. There is further reason to object. In many cultures, such as the Philistine and the Egyptian cultures. The king is considered to be a God. The king is God. Pharaoh is God, part of the Godhead. In the Torah, however, every king was assigned a prophet to keep him at bay and remind him and society of his imperfection. Right, what a great role of the prophet. Every king in Tanakh is given a prophet to follow him wrong and be like, uh-uh, can't do that, uh-uh, going too far, uh-uh, like you're not following the word of God. Right, you are not following justice and, and every king wants to imprison and kill that prophet. Um, nonetheless, there's always a prophet there. But it is not hard for a king to come to believe himself to be a God. And so we must avoid raising up humans to two high places of glory, mm-hmm. right? Even in a democracy where you're going to elect public officials, there need to be checks and balances. So later rabbis want us to avoid engaging with governments. Here's what they say again in Pirkei, I vote 110. Oh, love labor, hate mastery, and avoid relationship with the with the government, right? but hate mastery. Actually, the phrase there really is uh, hate the rabbanut, hate the hate the Um, rabbanut. But avoid relationship with the government. You should you should not be eager to get the invite to the White House. You should not be eager to show up at the at the governor's mansion. You shouldn't be eager to be on the inside. You want to be a Jew. A Jew stands on the outside, never corrupted by the inside. Yes, you might sometimes have to use your power and privilege on the inside to agitate. But really, you don't want to be corrupted by being an insider. You always want to be on the margins aligned with the most vulnerable rather than aligned with the most powerful. Rabbi Kolonimus Kalman Shapiro of Piagetzna, the Piagetzna Rebbe, wrote, in a place where holiness is revealed, there is no rulership and honors. Right? In a true place of holiness, there is only equality. There's only equality, not power as such. Similarly, friends, we can ask, why was the Torah given in the desert outside the land of Israel? If the pinnacle of the journey for the Jewish people was arriving in the land, then shouldn't the revelation happen then? Shouldn't Har Sinai, Mount Sinai be in Israel, right? We leave Egypt, we journey 40 years, we enter Israel and boom, there's the divine presence. That's not what happens. The divine presence happens outside of the Holy Land. Rather, one might suggest that the Torah was given in the desert, in Chutz in the Diaspora, precisely because it is outside of society, outside of government, and outside of sovereignty itself. The 19th to 20th century Polish Kabbalist, Rabbi Yehuda Ashlag, taught. And if you've never learned any Ashlag, then we just made our day, right? You said you might have been saying this morning, "If only someone would share some Rabbi Yehuda Ashlag with me." Right. I could have a good day. But you didn't know you were going to have a good day because you never learned Rabbi Yehuda Ashlag before until now. It's amazing. And so here we go. Right. You, maybe you thought your day was good because you're going to play some pickleball. Oh, or maybe you thought the day was going to be good because you have a great lunch coming up. All of that is good. But we have Ashlag here. Here's what he says. Altruistic communism will finally annul the brute force regime completely. For every man did that which was right in his eyes, quoting that source from Judges, we saw. Indeed, there is nothing more humiliating and degrading for a person than being under the brute force of government. He wants anarchy. Now, there were some Orthodox thinkers who were anarchists as well, such as British Orthodox, Rabbi Yankee Mayor Zalkin. Maybe you never heard of him. (laughs) The above-mentioned Kabbalist Rabbi Yehuda Ashwaq. Chabad, Rabbi of the early to mid 20th century, Rav Avraham Yehuda Khaim, Chabad, Rabbi, Rabbi Yehuda Leib Don Yahia. Rabbi Aharon Shmuel Tameret of early 20th century Poland, among others. Some are, now, it, it's interesting. Uh, 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 Chabad <laughs> is to the far right politically, and a lot of that is the emergence of the Rabbi out of, out of Russia and the relationship to Rav, Russian governments, and yet also we see here anarchists. out of of the Lubavitch world as well. Some are drawn towards spiritual ideas that are anti-authoritarian. Once again, only God is king. We don't want a human king, right? But some are drawn also by political ideas as anti-nationalist or anti-Zionist even. Others support libertarian communism. Still, there's others who may simply reject all forms of government they see around them. They're only thinking about what they see around them with all the coercion and corruption that they witness. Rabbi Soloveitchik at times champions a form of anarchism as well, suggesting that humans are meant to be free and not restrained. He only concedes that there needs to have law in order to prevent a breakdown of society. Once again, Hobbes, consider this passage in his book, uh, The Emergence of Ethical Man. Bondage to man excludes divine friendship. The beloved must tear down all the social and political barriers that fence in the individual and imprison his initiative and liberty. Right? Any barriers to freedom are gonna limit our actualization. Right? The care. This is like also like a child who's like any rule their parent gives them is like complete like uh, oppression. Right? I my my daughter last night we gave her a lollipop, uh, like a rare lollipop at night for a special occasion. You know and. This was like a travesty that she couldn't have an additional treat in addition to this lollipop. It was like, like she wanted total anarchy. Like any rule at this point was complete oppression. And everything we taught her about community organizing and and protesting was now emerging in our home front around her organizing her siblings in complete, uh, you know, um, uh, resistance to the authorities (laughs) at home. The charismatic person is anarchic. Liberty-loving, he frees himself from all the fixed formulas and rhythms of an urbanized civilization and joins a fluid, careless, roving nomad society. An ancient Egyptian document describes the nomads as follows. Here is the miserable stranger. He does not dwell in the same spot. His feet are always wandering. From times of he battles, he does not conquer and is not conquered. The stranger is indomitable. He may lose a battle, but never lose a war. He will never reconcile with political subjection. Roaming, wandering, he will escape persecution and oppression. When the need arises, the nomad stands up and fights for his freedom, and many time, a time proves superior in battle to the settled king. Avraham's heroism on the battlefield is the best illustration. Now, what, what Rav Soloveitchik has just done here is he's saying the refugee, the immigrant, is the hero not only because They they are willing to flee and they're willing to be vulnerable for a better life. But also because they are fundamentally stateless, they are fundamentally someone who is not subject to a ruler. Right? This is kind of um, uh, counterintuitive here. But essentially, this these people are heroic in their anarchy, their nature of anarchy. They are willing to flee one government and submit the rule of law in another government by 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 arriving as such, and um, as such, believe there is an ethic and there is a God beyond the power of the nation state. Of course, far more than religious anarchists have been the Jewish secular anarchists, right? You get some Jewish religious anarchists, but many, many secular anarchists, such as Emma Goldman, if you've never read of Emma Goldman, you should read of her, Mikael Bakunin, Leo Tolstoy, of course, and Noam Chomsky. happens to be in our VBM learning library as we interviewed him two years ago and and two days ago, two years and two days ago. (laughs) Relatedly, figures such as Martin Buber and Gershon Shalom argued for non-nationalist manifestations of Zionism. But in the end, monarchy won out in Jewish history. The Jews embraced countless Jewish kings and Jewish traditional teachings on messianism argue that the monarchy will return. Monarchy is not an only ideal of the past and a concession to the current, but also a messianic vision of the future. But where does that leave us now? We have an ancient Jewish history of monarchs and a future eschatological destiny of monarchs, but what about in modern times? Today, Jews live with unparalleled history under Israeli sovereignty and participate in a sovereign government in the United States. Of course, both the United States and Israeli governments are democracies, well, uh, mostly. But all Jews must abide by the decisions and laws of those governments just the same. One could argue that Jews have never been safer in even one location in all of Hess history, not to mention in two locations simultaneously both Israeli and American security require strong governments. So merely on the level of self-protection, it is simple to make a case for strong centralized government. But even beyond that, the state of Israel and the United States do enormous good for the global community. Of course, even alongside the inevitable harm that each does. Professor Michael Walzer, may he live and be well, Argues that the monarchy model sows the roots for later democracy. You can see our interv- our VBM interview with Professor Walter, fascinating stuff, uh, Professor Emeritus at Princeton University. So do we want an authoritarian king today? No, of course not. But does our tradition embrace, our traditional embrace of the monarchy set a trajectory toward the arguably most desirable form of government, democracy? Yes. Walzer says we need the monarchy to ultimately build a stepping stone towards democracy and that the Bible helps us get there. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs in The Dignity of Difference and other works of his argues that there must be more than just, just government and the market. Liberals want bigger government and more regulations on the market. Conservatives want smaller government and less regulations on the market. But Rabbi Sachs argues there must be a third space. Right, just to state that again. Liberals want big government and more regulations on the market. Conservatives want smaller government, less regulations on the market. And SACs want a third space called society. Yes, there is a need for government and for a marketplace, but we need the realm of ideas, communities, and values to inform how both of these operate. Some people think the whole vehicle to change is the market. Some people think the whole vehicle to change is the government. And Sachs says, no, no, both of those have a role, but the role of religion, the role of intellectuals, the role of volunteerism, that is called the marketplace of ideas. And that is where the greatest change can take place and where we will have the best potential to shape the market and to shape the government. There's just so much that governments, whether in the form of monarchy or democracy, cannot do for us. Here's what Peter Singer writes in Ethics in the Real World. Governments can't legislate happiness or ban depression, but public policy can play a role in ensuring that people have time to relax with friends and pleasant places to do it. For many governments, both national and local, preventing crime is a far higher priority than encouraging friendship and cooperation, but as Professor Richard Layard of the London School of Economics has argued in his recent book, Happiness, Lessons from a New Science, promoting friendship is often easy and cheap and can have big payoffs in making people happier. So why shouldn't that be a focus of public policy? So friends, both the the strong liberals and the strong conservatives are wrong. The strong conservative says, oh, it's all in the realm of the market, right? There's no role of government in, in achieving the good. Right? Aside from maybe some, some having army to protect us. And the, and the liberals are wrong that, that, that advocating for justice is going to solve all problems. The government can do everything, right? Of course, there's a, a role for government policy. And of course, there's a, there's a role for markets. And yet, the role of community, the role of Jewish community, of synagogues, of Christian community, Muslim community, of secular society, of places where we come together, we volunteer, we learn, we talk, we reach out. We build families and communities. That is the role that governments cannot play and markets can't play. And so for those of us living in America today, where does that leave our thinking? Susan Nyman writes in her great book, Moral Clarity. She's also a professor at uh, Princeton University. Great book. She writes, Americans, uh, she's quoting here Robert Kagan. Americans, he concluded, are Hobbesians." Remember Hobbes. While Europeans are Kantians, Europeans have withdrawn into a cocoon that is shielded from the harsh circumstances of conflict only because the US remains in the anarchic and unstable center of history, acknowledging how bad things really are and using military power to prevent them from falling apart entirely. Europeans think we have reached the Kantian dream in which ideas of peaceful negotiation, international courts, and common concern for sharing global wealth makes things work. But though we too would like to live in a dream world, Americans recognize the hard facts of this one and are enough, resolute enough to respond to them, thereby taking on the burdens that allow Europeans to dream on. It is very difficult to stop thinking about Hobbes' idea and the social contract, even more so as the global political drama continues to unfold, his case for how a governmentless society would lead to the war of every man against every man, in which life would be nasty, brutish, and short. Without a government that holds control, humans would live in a natural state of constant war. Everyone would be, in Hobbes' words, constantly afraid and living in continual fear and danger of violent death, and the life of man solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. We witness this reality in the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. As unhappy as we can be with the state of nation states today and the chosen officials, we can still work to muster up the appreciation that most of these regimes, regimes are maintaining some order and preventing lawless chaos. We have a sacred obligation to protest the unjust policies of governments, but it is also wise and our responsibility and obligation on some level to support the order that governments provide to society, even when we disagree with the elected officials running them. Tyrants, despots, and fascists excluded, of course. It's not easy to strike the right balance between protesting and supporting governments that are misguided. But each of us can learn to play our unique role. Hobbes still provides us something to think about 350 years after his death. And so in democracy today, rather than submit to authority, we should argue about the just society safely and fairly. The 20th century American author and activist, a Quaker thinker, Parker Palmer writes, Human beings have a well demonstrated capacity to hold the tension of differences in ways that lead to creative outcomes and advances. It is not an impossible dream to believe we can apply that capacity to politics. In fact, our capacity for creative tension building is what made the American experiment possible in the first place. As I argue in this book, America's founders, despite the bigotry that limited their conception of who we the people were, had the genius to establish the first form of government in which differences, conflict, and tension were understood not as the enemies of a good social order, but as the engines of a better societal order. He continues, from the separation of powers and systems of checks and balances among the executive, legislative, and judicial branches, to the tug of war between federal and state governments, to our adversarial system of justice, American democracy was intended to generate, not suppress the energy created by conflict, converting it into social progress as a hydroelectric plant converts the energy of dammed up water into usable power. Friends, to move towards a conclusion here, American democracy was developed to be specifically in contrast to a monarchy, by dividing up power between executive legislative and judicial branches of government, for example, the framers of the US Constitution sought to avoid any absolute claims to power. This was also, in many ways, the uh, the, process, the electoral process, and in some cases, although uh, subject to debate today, a process of filibuster, you know, having larger majorities uh, to, to, to create changes. Democracy can be a way to balance our spiritual pull toward anarchy with our spiritual toward, pull toward monarchy. We seek order and control, but we also seek to make God the only one above us. We don't want lawlessness, but we don't want tyranny either. Democracy in its best form provides order and checks and balances, but also ensure there's no authoritarian king. What matters in a democracy as opposed to a monarchy, is that an election takes place and that there is accountability after the election. I think we may need to consider moving away from thinking of a monarchy as a valid future Jewish model, aside from a newer version, the figurehead model that we see in modern countries today, such as Thailand and Britain. Our Jewish case for democracy does not need to be a literal one. Rather, we should be consequentialist. The Torah wants a just society, and choosing a political society is in some ways a means to an end of creating the just society. Of course, the means must be just as well, honoring the dignity of the citizens. The Torah wants us to be healthy, but that doesn't mean that we follow medieval science. So too, we need a healthy society, but dare not revert to anarchic, possibly even dangerous models. We are left with many questions today. We see different types of democracies around the world. Which model do we believe leads to the best consequences and ought to be the Jewishly embraced form of modern government? And outside the role of persuasive educator and religious leader, what should the political power be of a philosopher king messiah? These questions and more are worth pondering as we do our utmost during our lifetime and form of government to preserve and better society. Okay, friends, I'd love to hear from you on this age old debate starting in Tanakh and beyond. Yes, Lauren.
2: Okay, I have some comments to make on monarchy and some comments to make on the role of government. Um, I am a subject of Her Majesty, Queen Elizabeth II. You're a Canadian Shmuley, so are you. Um, I think you're forgetting that there's a different form of monarchy and that actually democracy started in great, well, there's Greece. But I mean, modern democracy started in Great Britain with a with, uh, prime minister and a cabinet and the whole parliamentary procedure. And all of the um, countries that were, were once colonies of Great Britain now live under a parliamentary democracy, which I believe works extremely well. So as far as, um, and, and the monarch at this point is really just a figurehead um, Queen Elizabeth has been exemplary. She's, she's a wonderful role model. Um, as far as Jewish monarchy, when you learn, say from Malachi, Aleph and Bey, it it was a mess. Uh, the kingdom went from bad to worse. David, not so bad. Shlomo started all, all good and then it all fell apart. And the kings after that, with a few exceptions, were disasters and brought us to the destruction of, um, of the beta dash to a vote of Zara. I want to mention government. So I tend to see Americans as too anarchic. I really do, with all due respect. Um, I, I think like this, this whole freedom thing is like you, you need responsibility. So this, you know, I won't have a vaccine because I don't care about my own health. Why should I care about anybody else? I won't wear a mask. You know, that's not freedom, that's crap. You know, you don't have the you have the right to go around infecting other people. You know, Typhoid Mary was, she was jailed for a good reason. You could see how, yeah, ask me how do I really feel about COVID laws. So, you know, I, I think that there's, with freedom, because responsibility in government also has a reason. Well, they have, a, a, their role is to provide me with health care to make sure, I'm a Canadian, to make sure that there aren't guns running loose on the street, um, to make sure I have clean water, um, hopefully at this point now to, to give clean water to our first nations. But without government, we're really in bad shape. And um, I really think that there's a, a, a real reason to follow, follow laws that are for the good of the nation. Okay, that's it.
0: Okay, tell us what you really think, Lauren. <laughs> <laughs> For a Canadian, I'm very, very passionate. No, no, it's great. I I, I think every Canadian should have American Zoom audiences. Or the, uh, bash down America. No, really, because Canada is you got a, it. a model. And uh, <laughs> no, but thank you. No, and I I appreciate your points. And um, you know, it is really important that uh, it, that we emphasize. You know, the power of democracy and the, and, and the threats to democracy um, and fake freedom as you, as you talk about that, you know, the freedom to do as, as whatever one pleases without, without any restraints. We know the threats to democracy in America are very real today, whether it emerges from the insurrection, whether it emerges from gerrymandering, whether it emerges from filibusters or electoral college, there are many different threats to how democracy operates, whether it emerges from ignorance, you know, on the progressive side, the conservative side, the centrist side, people who just aren't educated and they just have no idea what they're voting for. They just vote for their, you know, whatever their, you know, their bandwagon says to, you know, to do, um, and uh, or or elect people who are most charismatic who really have no clue what they're doing. This is not democracy. Uh, the will of the masses. This is this is deception. Now, one of the areas that that this question of anarchy emerges today in in kind of a a hidden form is. Um, not in anti-democracy. I think even the anti-democracy folks um, are rarely saying we're anti-democracy. They're just claiming um, that it needs to be reshaped. But actually, I think some of the things you see about dismantling authority—for example, in the far left—you learn, you hear about defunding the dismantling the police, right? Um, the, the 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 complete dismantling of the police force. That the argument there is police force is inevitably and pervasively and completely. Uh, a branch of white supremacy and thus the entire police force has to be uh defunded and dismantled that that that's really anarchy uh in the end when you strip the government of of a a means to uh to physically protect society um now that, that that's not me saying there there are there isn't major police brutality and, and uh and problems of white supremacy in the police force but we should be clear that and also people who say something like um you know, banish ICE, basically banish any form of policing of borders is also another form of anarchy, that a government has an obligation to its citizens to also protect borders in addition to maintaining order in society. We can debate what are just immigration policies or not, but saying that one should banish ICE is the same as, as dismantling the police force is essentially another form of call for anarchy, a a banning of the government's role of, of it's it's um, understanding of protecting society from internal or external, external threats. And so there are all, all kinds of calls of anarchy today that look very different in the past. It's not no government. It is the government should have, or, or a pacifist who says the government should never go to war. That would also be a form of anarchy. Anything that strips the government of a fundamental capacity to achieve its means to protect society, whether we agree or disagree with the way they're doing it, um, would be uh, a form of energy. Yes, Michael?
3: There's another factor now I don't think we've ever seen before, too. And that is what it, what the impact of technology is having in our ability to form consensus, our ability to have a, 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 a similar understanding of the view of the world we're in. And I think, you know, we naively thought 20, 30 years ago with the emergence of the Internet, we'd all... Have greater communication and be able to, and it's actually fractured. And I, I don't think we, I don't think we know how the impact and how this is going to evolve in time, and how within this new information environment and technology we form consensus, we form, you know, shared views on things. And and I think that's a that's a real question that that is good, which is also opened up from from foreign interference. How much of what we've seen is also an impact of, of foreign countries messing around in, in, our, in, our, in our system in terms of a belief
0: system and, and view of that. Yeah, great point. Those are great points that, that, that those external threats to democracy as well, not to mention social media, um, the, the forms of social media that block some things and don't block other things. Um and, and the foreign threats, as we saw with Russia. Um, you know, by the way, what, just one correction uh, when, when i when I was referring to ice earlier, what I really meant to refer to was um, border patrol. Um, I you know, ice is a much later uh, creation, um you know after nine eleven, but border patrol is really what I was referring to uh, over there. Um but yes, Michael, thank you for those those important points as well. Moly. Yes, Hi, Cheryl. Hi.. Um-
4: so you you mentioned that anarchy on the on the on the far left it would you know to defund the police and everything like that, but isn't it really a form of anarchy on the far right when there are laws in place to say we should banish the laws? For example, about getting vaccines, you know, here's the law that's been established. I mean, it's, so there's anarchy, re- really tendencies on on both sides, just because. I think I said it maybe in last week's too about how polarized we are. There's really very little middle ground anymore. Everything is open to interpretation. So the laws seem to have lost their value and certainly their strength. And and that that would
0: say on on both sides, I think too. Yeah, that is a great point. That is a great point. Absolutely. That is one of the many examples on the far right of, of a call towards anarchy. The, the attempt to say that government has no role in regulating um, regulating my body um, when my choices can affect another person. Now, again, there there's but, huge difference. yeah now,
4: hypocritical. I mean, you know, you can you know, it's when it's convenient. You know that they should have a comma when it's convenient.
0: Okay. You know. Yes. We, we yeah. So we will black we will, we will bracket the debates of the overlap the overlapping seemingly overlaps of, of abortion laws. Uh, and how they kind of intersect or, or are parallel to public health laws uh, in regards to public safety and the like, and the rights to choose and the rights to be free with what one does with one's body. But yes, uh, ultimately uh, quite convenient. And, um, uh, and so, yeah, I very much appreciate that. And I think also similar, there are many laws that are laws but aren't enforced. And those are also a problem. For example, minimum wage laws are not enforced you, you know um, the Department of Labor yeah you, you hear of ice raids where I, where where immigration laws enforce and a factory gets raided and they take a uh, hundred or 200 you know um, workers from Guatemala and deport them. but when have you ever heard of a labor raid? When have you heard of a labor raid where they raid a factory where there's 200 workers being paid below minimum wage and they raid and you know and arrest the, you know the owner you don't because the Department of Labor does not regulate. Minimum wage laws, by and large, it is completely underfunded, um, and so yeah, there's all for, there's a whole bunch of you know kind of functional or practical anarchies that are in place that is kind of a lawless form of society. Yes, you, Eddie. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry, Sarah. We'll come back to you after Eddie. Yeah.
5: Um, yeah, I, I I I'm loving this conversation, and I think that. Um, there, there always needs to be a balance. There needs to be a shift in balance of, of what we look at uh, as far as governmental support and as far as what we look at, like um, liberation and freedom. Um, it's, it's funny, there's a, a, an example of, of what happens when you don't have any sort of government support. There is a, a, a city, a small city in New Hampshire um, that was purchased by a, a group of people that were, they considered themselves libertarians and they uh, completely lived without any government support and uh, the city failed and uh, does anybody want to guess why the city failed it failed because of bears bears are the reason why it failed there was nobody picking up trash so people were just dumping out trash this happened in new hampshire and people were just dumping out trash so first recorded ever bear attacks in New Hampshire were reported because people no longer had um, trash pickups, no longer had paramedics. So people were dying from bear attacks because paramedics weren't showing, law enforcement wasn't showing. So I believe there needs to be a, a, a proper balance to what we're saying. And, and when we're looking at like law enforcement and I like when we're saying, you know, like we see some folks are saying like abolish um, police uh, in 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 those circles, um, I think that that language really isn't what what they're trying to to portray, because what they're trying to portray is is really looking at the the sense of when we look at policing in in North Scottsdale versus South Scottsdale, there's like hyper policing in, in um, South Phoenix. Sorry, there's like hyper policing in South Phoenix versus in North Scottsdale. You barely see one police officer per every 30 minutes that you drive around a block. So in that case, there is lowered policing. And, and we can see that in, in in societies, we have already proven to live pretty well with lowered policing because the cities up north here don't really have that policing. So I think that there needs to be a shift in balance, right? In, in a balance where we're not saying like, tear down everything, because we've seen that fundamentally that has been flawed, but there also needs to be a system of balance where we say, well, you know, there there can't be too much control.
0: Awesome points. Awesome points from Eddie, the shifting of balance, um, you know, not neither extreme of too much control nor uh, of anarchy, but the shifting of balance. And as Eddie points out, this government role of preserving the collective good, with schooling and um, and um, you know and a whole bunch of other things, you know, even sanitation, as pointed out with the bears, you know, I mean, a whole bunch of roles that the government has to play for the collective good. In addition to the role of government for for um, collective good, the question also emerges in our literature around motives: Why do people do what they do? And one way to define being religious, in addition, aside from being ethical, is is a concern for purity of motives. Being ethical may just be about doing the good thing, not doing the bad thing. Being religious is why you do the ethical, right? And one might be ethical because they don't do X, Y, and Z wrongs or harms. And yet, if they don't do it because they don't wanna go to jail, is that a religious person or someone who's just preserving themselves? Part of the, the, the religious call for less regulation is about people doing things out of their own motives. Now there's also a problem to that. Consider the argument of "Don't tax me because we will just be philanthropic to with you know to sustain all the systems that collectively nurture us." Well, we know that's just not true. Um, that when there's lower taxation, you know, philanthropy doesn't, doesn't just increase. Americans still give around one percent, you know, and so it's not like lower taxation leads to higher philanthropic commitment, you know, of some form or another. And so. Um, I think this case of like, how do we maintain governmental control, but also maintain deeper spiritual and moral motives for why we do what we do rather than just um, to follow laws. Let's go, let's hear what Cheryl was about to say and then we'll go to Eileen. I was just actually to Eddie's point
4: uh, about the bears kind of indirectly, but you know, the whole um, try the whole government trying to manage uh, climate change is certainly something too that is being, uh, you know, disavowed, uh, you know, as as a real problem on some sides. And, you know, and so, but there's laws in place. I mean, a lot of, uh, they have put the laws in place. So to that end, now with all the car manufacturers coming out with electric cars and things like that. So they're beginning to follow the, you know, follow the law by addressing some of the problems. But I was thinking that climate change is another area where people it's a convenient thing for people to say, well, I won't do this, I won't do that. And yet it's right in front of their face with these poor souls in, in the Midwest, you know, with this most recent uh, uh, weather catastrophe. So, um, you know, the government trying to regulate climate change, you know, if <laughs> it doesn't have to do with the bears, but it it kind of
0: does. <laughs> you know, yeah, that's another great case. Like there's so many cases where I wish the government would regulate me. You know, on you know, on environmentalism. I'm like, I'm buying these disposables, like, they're here. I need them. I want them. I'm buying this gas. I'm going to use this gas, you know, but I wish, like, government, like, don't let me buy this, you know, uh, you know, I wish I could li- always live by the highest levels, but I can't. So I need you to step in and, like, get, like, make me buy the things I need to buy, make it, make it accessible, you know. So, yeah. So thank you. It's, it's, um, that's powerful, Eileen.
6: Um, it seems to me that anytime we have extremes, either the far right or the far left, we get things occurring that logically and maybe morally should not because their belief is so strong in what they're doing that they have no ability to understand another perspective. And as as long as we are a divided society and I'm going to say based on education, we're going to have problems. We're, We're not going to be able to be cohesive. We were cohesive in World War II because we saw the enemy we recognize the enemy. Today, our fellow Americans are the enemy.
0: That You know, you, you raise a great point. And I think this is a, um, a really important process towards our ability to advocate for what's right and just without having to go to demonize. It can't be we live in a society where everyone on the left thinks that if, you're, if you lean right, that you are naturally like a racist hater. And everyone of the right things, if you lean to the left, you just want selfish entitlements, you know, and are all about yourself. And like, like we have to break out of that. There's a ways to advocate and, um, and not think that way. And I think that's the start is to understand that people hold the values they hold for a reason. And we could try to persuade them to think of it differently, but everyone is not just full of hate who argues for their own ideology. And so to create a shift, I think the real shift that's gonna happen It's not just from just some political win that one side or another is gonna get. It's gonna happen by those who are really in the process of education, helping people talk, understand, think through critical issues um, and create a larger cultural shift. So thank you, thank you for that. Who else wants to jump in here?
7: Shmuley, can you hear me?
1: Oh, Steve, now we hear Steve. you.
7: Oh, my God, it works. Right. I can't believe yeah. it.
1: Yes, I can
7: see and I can hear.
1: Right.
7: Um The collective good, I, I'm obsessed by words. I was an English literature major in college, admittedly for the want of something else. I had no idea what I wanted to do. <laughs> and I always got stuck on words. And there are a couple of words that have come up today. One is... Uh, selfish the other is self interest and i kind of thought they were one and the same that to be interested in in things that that are important to you is not it is kind of selfish because you're thinking of yourself but that does not mean you're thinking to the exclusion of society and we also mentioned common good, and, and how do we determine what common good is? Who, who, who says this is common good? Um, so those are the little burrs underneath my saddle today. And number three, and this is something everything has, everybody has talked about today, the power of certain words and how they become so tangibly offensive for instance i learned that i am a thing i'm an optimist and optimism is now a thing i had no idea optimism was a thing i thought you know i'm i'm lucky i'm an optimist i've lived for a long time i've seen a lot of problems i saw a national guard in baltimore coming down to downtown baltimore in 1968 with bayonets drawn, preventing me and my dad to get to his office, and and that doesn't happen anymore. Uh, I am an optimist because I've seen things good goodness prevail, and I know good people. Uh, so I don't know where I'm going with that, except to say that um, words have taken on a whole identity unto themselves, and um, I pass from there.
0: Awesome, Steve. That's a great place for us to wrap up on this reflections between between when does self interest become selfishness? What a, when when is self interest valid and natural and and normal? And when is it um, self absorption or selfishness to the exclusion or harm of others and the common good? Who's defining that? Who's even who's even cultivating a shared discourse of common good? As Isaiah Berlin said, the freedom to and freedom from. We have the freedom from, that's one role of government, keep us free from something. But then we also have the role of freedom to that now that we're free from something, what are we free to do? And that's called the common good. What are we going to do with our freedom ultimately? And um, and that leads us to optimism, that if we look at this history and we look at the progress we've seen, um, we have good reasons to think that from anarchy to monarchy, to democracy and other forms, that we are in many ways moving in good directions. And so on that note, I, I hope we can all continue to be optimistic and and not just a passive optimism, but a, uh, an active one where we continue to learn and continue to bring that learning into action in order to prepare our society. Friends, next week, we have debate number 31, halacha versus the state. F- following this religious governmental theme, What is the ultimate vehicle towards progress? Law versus state versus religion and morality. Have a wonderful day, and thank you so much for joining. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Bait Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybaitmadrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work, by making a donation at valleybeatmadrash.org donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.